Conversations on the Arts. I'm Mary Krieger. Our conversation today is with Thomas Solomon of Thomas Solomon Gallery at Cottage Home, where he has this wonderful show by Alexis Smith, Play It As It Lays. Anyway, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. Nice to talk with you. Good to see you. Thanks so much. Yeah. Um, so tell me, this is a collaboration with Margot Loving Gallery. How did this show come about? Well, I guess it came about from when my mother, Holly, with my father, Horace, introduced me to Alexis's work in New York City. My mother, Holly, had a gallery called Holly Solomon Gallery, and that was on West Broadway. And I think that Holly had invited Alexis to be in an exhibition at a group show, and I saw her work, and I met Alexis. How old were you? I was 16 at the time growing up in New York City. And, and, and I just wanted to mention that Holly Solomon, one of the great doyens of the New York arts scene, and um, the question I had been dying to ask you before this interview is, what was it like growing up in the household with, with this kind of a mother who was such a large figure in the art world? It was very special, actually. You know, like meeting Alexis or meeting innovative, interesting new artists. From when I was a boy, I first, I never started uh, not to wonder who the hell am I going to meet up this day. I'd come home from school, uh, I would meet a curator, an artist, a writer, I'd give a tour to a museum group as a boy, to the collection of the house. I was always being taken to galleries and museums. Uh, never to parties or a late night. My mother didn't drag me out into the, you know, into the uh, party world of the New York art world in the 60s. But the party world in New York in the 60s came to my parents' house. My parents were amazing collectors of contemporary yes, art. Yes, what are they? They did. Didn't they have some like important the Marilyn painting or? Well, they, they actually. I mean, I think the first piece that my mother purchased was a Dan Flavin. And it was for Barbara Rose. It was Dan Flavin's first artwork. It was a rose in neon in a pot. And I remember as a boy, my mother coming home very excited with an Andy Warhol Brillo box. My father saying, what is that? <laughs> my mother saying, oh, it'll be as a, as a table in our dining room. Uh, so it'll have function. But my mother is an actress. She was an actress in the 50s. She studied with Lee Strasberg uh, acting, and she was a professional actress. Summer stage she did, and she worked professionally in the theater, trying to get really good Broadway acting. She was mostly really only off-Broadway. But she also wrote. She wrote theater. She wrote screenplays. And, Which um, ladies produced? No, they were not produced. She self-produced a couple of different uh, more performances, artwork, theater pieces. One was at a gym called Footnotes to Macbeth, and it was at a very famous gym in New York for boxing. So she wrote this play that was about Macbeth and hired professional boxers to box and as the round ended, the play was in the theater, was in the center of the stage. So each act of 
the ten rounds, the ten acts, was involved with this live boxing match. It was called the boxing match. And she wrote really interesting plays, and she wrote screenplays actually with Andy Warhol. How did she meet Andy Warhol, do you know? I don't really know how they first met. Um, She was going to Sidney Janis Gallery and Martha Jackson and sort of doing the rounds. She did the art rounds during the week or on weekends when she had time. I think she went to Leo Castelli Gallery and saw either a show of Andy's at Castelli after his Ferris show with Ferris, the soup can show with Irving. She met Andy and she hit it off with Andy right away. My mother was a sort of amazing looking woman, sort of beyond Edie Sedgwick of that caliber of Viva, Edie Sedgwick, blonde hair. She was extremely well read, which I think Andy really liked about her. She was not only this incredible looking person, but as well really self-taught, educated woman. And uh, as far as I remember, she was the first woman I know to wear jeans, actually. Wow. Um, And uh, she sort of brought a downtown aesthetic uptown. So as I mentioned about Alexa Smith and about New York, the world came to my apartment to where I was growing up. They would throw amazing, this is in the early mid-60s, big parties. Yes. Parties, we lived in a four-bedroom apartment. Where was it? On 57th Street. It was a building between First and Sutton Place, actually. It was a building my grandfather had bought in the height of the Depression and for $50,000. He had the cash My father grew up in Englewood, New Jersey, basically, and then moved to New York, married my mother. They met at a Sarah Lawrence Vassar college dance and fell in love. My mother was acting. My father was working for his father in Englewood. They found an apartment, I think, on Fifth Avenue. And then um, they decided to move into this building that my grandfather had bought. My grandparents lived on the 13th floor. My cousins, uh, my father's sister, lived on the 14th floor. We lived on the 11th. Um, Bill Blast lived. They owned the whole building. They owned the whole building. Great. Bill Blast lived in the penthouse. Um, And Meryl Monroe and Joe DiMaggio had lived in the building. It was a pre war building. Um, My father's sister, Muriel, collected art. And collecting Franz Klein, Ad Reinhard, um, pretty beautiful, small, but pretty beautiful artworks. And my mother going to acting professionally, theater, off-Broadway. She went around to the galleries, saw young artists, and the Flavin or this Brillo box of Warhol. Did she buy it from the Dick Bellamy? Bellamy, yes, at Green Gallery. Yeah. Actually, uh, Younger galleries showing younger artists at the time. This was 1963, 64. Very few people were collecting any art, any young art, basically. And I think my mom really didn't, not only once she couldn't afford Rothko and Klein and of that generation, she wanted to sort of form her own generation. 
of artists who were part of her generation. So my father had went to school with Klaus Oldenburg at wow. Yale and knew Klaus and Patty, his first wife, yeah. and went to the store. And by the they were showing at the Green Gallery. Yes, they were showing, I mean, he was showing at the Green at Gallery the Green and right. went to the first store. And they bought a piece of Klaus and they fell in love with Klaus's art. I, uh, I remember as a boy sleeping in a soft tire sculpture of Klaus's. <laughs> There were three tires that were in a corner, and I made that sort of my bed. And I think that was 1964, if I remember right. Um, and then I never used to eat. I have very bad eating habits. When I was four, I hardly ate anything. And finally, as a present for my fifth birthday, Robert Indiana made a painting for me called USA Eat and presented it to me. And actually, that first started, after that, I, I think I started to eat. So art did change my life physically. Um, and uh, in terms of the art, um, my parents always believed if you liked something, an artwork, you kept supporting that artist. You kept buying that artist's work. It wasn't just decorating. It wasn't just an artwork over the couch and you filled your house. It was a relationship. It. it was a relationship with the work, with the artist. That they believed in Warhol's work, so if one was good, 20 was better. Oldenburg, they found Roy Lichtenstein's work. They purchased a piece called Anxious Girl, which was a really beautiful comic book painting. They also purchased another piece this was 1964, when Roy had no money, was living without heat in a cold water flat. My mom and, and Roy had an interesting relationship with Dorothy, who was Roy's wife, and yeah. amazing people, and yeah. basically uh, said, I'd love for you to do my portrait. He was beginning a series of women comic book and asked my mother to say, okay, uh, would you choose an image from a comic book that I'll paint? So she went through comic books, but both with my father, and I think it was for a present uh, for my mom. It was a commission, Lichtenstein, it's called I'm Sorry. And it's a really amazing painting that was in our, it was outside of my bedroom for many now? years. Yeah, it's at LACMA. Eli Broad bought it. It's part of the LACMA Eli Broad uh, collection that's at the Broad Museum right now. So I get to see my mom once in a while through through Lichtenstein, through the painting. Um, she looks great. She's blonde, and it says, I'm sorry. Um, I think they were, were going to do a second um, portrait, but at that point, it wasn't about the ego of my mother being painted of her portrait. She got known for her portraits, Artists who would paint her well, portraits. Well, it's famous portrait of her by Andy Warhol, right? Yes, of 1960. Actually, I think it's 1966. Uh, she had wanted Andy to do my portrait, and then her portrait, pardon me, um, <laughs> my portrait. Um, I'm very opposite of my mom. I don't like my portraits being done. Very oddly, only one person has, Robert Maplethorpe, who I love very much. Bob did my portrait with my brother. We have a brother side profile Maplethorpe did when we were, I was 16, John was 19. Um, my mom was the first one to show Bob's work. It was Bob's first dealer, actually, in New York at her gallery. 
But uh, as I was saying with Warhol, her portrait, she was interested in Andy doing her portrait. They went to a, a um, photo booth and with quarters together, my mother and Andy went, okay, all these quarters do this Lee Strasberg, this method acting. Uh, so Holly did these poses and her thinking of method acting. And all of these strips that she did with Warhol, um, actually I think Andy was there for a little bit and then said, Holly, you do it, I'm going back to the factory. So she showed up with all these strips, gave it to Andy, but it was quite a while, actually. Uh, I think that was the strips were done in 64 or 65. But I, I think there was quite a time that um, between a year or so, I think there was a group called the Velvet Underground who was living at the factory. Lou Reed and yeah. the Velvet, sort of amazing, influential group. Yeah. They were living there, and I think Holly remembered getting a call from Andy saying that I think the, the Velvet Underground, I've gotten them a gig in the West Coast, so they're finally able to leave the factory. You can come, and we can do the portrait. So I think that the the, uh, the Velvet Underground leaving finally the factory and going to the West Coast uh, had uh, made it able that Andy could do my por my mother's portrait, which is nine panels, um, very beautiful, very Hollywood, different colors in a nine panel, three, three, and three. And uh, again, it was not a way... It was interesting. Always when she had artists do her portrait, Archfogger did her portrait, Cristo did her portrait. The artists were young, they needed money. And it was a way that my mother could get them money and get something inspirational and interesting that maybe you might not think of Archfogger as a portrait painter. You might not think of Lichtenstein doing somebody's portraits. Well, Warhol, of course, the only living portrait Andy did before my mother was Ethel Skull. Andy had really my mother and Ethel Skull um, and a f only a few really supporters in the early mid-60s. You know, Irving Blum here uh, in Los Angeles, Philip Johnson in New York, and most of Andy's support was in Europe, actually, was in London and Germany. Um, and a couple of different people who bought the work. Really, Jasper Johns, who my parents loved dearly. Jasper and Robert Rauschenberg. Did they come up for dinner? Well, yeah, the parties and the dinners. <laughs> Jasper would be in the living room. Warhol would be in the dining room. Lichtenstein would be in the library. And Christo and Jean-Claude would be here in the kitchen talking. And they entertained. They supported young artists. They fed everyone. They threw great parties. In the 60s, I learned like with a drink, if I were to have a soda, I'm holding a soda in my hand, and I put it down in my dining room or in my library as a boy, uh, my mother said, never pick it up and drink it. <laughs> and I never understood really at that point she That's said, a good mom. why? She <laughs> said, well, you know, it would be spiked with LSD. So people would be into giving people free acid trips at parties. 
So you never put an empty drink, I mean, a, a drink that was still down. Right. Otherwise, if you did take it up, you might have a trip that maybe you didn't want. Um, actually, I think that happened to my mom a couple of times. Um, so I think she spoke of experience. But she, she really, um, it was artists and art was always a part of her life, which I've made it a part of my life. But it really wasn't about the money at all, was it? No. Yeah. No, it wasn't. Um, before the Skull sale, which really was the first Ethel and Robert Skull sold their collection at auction. And that was really the first contemporary, what's known as the market for art or a secondary market happened from the Skull sale. Um, but no, collecting art from, I mean, the two artists who were in the 50s in New York, the most celebrated, the most collected, was Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns. My parents owned a couple of Johns' works, but they were pretty expensive from Castelli. Both Bob, rightfully so. I mean, the, the early combines from 54, you know, through the early 60s of Rauschenberg or Jasper Johns' flags or maps. They bought a painting of a fork, a knife, I think in a spoon that was in our dining room of Jasper's, but that was from 73. They finally did, Leo did get them a painting, but, and it costs, I think, a great deal of money in the early 70s for a John's painting of that time. And, you know, Warhols were $500, $1,200, Lichtenstein was $1,500, Oldenburg was $1,200, uh, John Chamberlain Tonk, or a, a small Chamberlain, again, was under $2,000. And, you know, they collected... That was, really that, was that was a lot of money for, then. For the, the when, when an apartment in New York cost $500 or $300 a month, uh, $2,000 was half a year's, you know, rent on an apartment. And my mother had my brother John, 1957, and me in 1960 and stopped acting. She sort of quit the theater when she had John and I. Um, she studied method acting with Strasberg and was friends with Cicely Tyson. And Warren Beatty used to wheel me around. He was in, the, in Strasberg. And I grew up very luckily, as I say, in, a, in an environment where I met poets, writers, artists, curators, you know, all sorts of music, people, rock and roll music, avant-garde music from Merce Cunningham and John Cage to filmmakers like Jonas Mikas and Hollis Frampton and really important younger artists who, uh, you know, in that day it was, uh, as you said, about not about the money. It was really about supporting culture and ideas. Soho was beginning... When I would go to Soho as a boy in 1968, I think there was just Paula Cooper who opened with a group Reese show. Reese Paley. There was Reese Paley, but Reese opened. I remember going to Reese Paley opening. From San Francisco, Paula really was the first gallery, and then 420 started. Yeah. But really, 98 Green Street, which was my mother's alternative space, was called 98 Green Street Loft. She started it with my father, Horace, and she started it. 112 Green Street next door, basically, 
was a space that Jeffrey Liu, a sculptor, had. And Gordon Mata Clark showed there, was beginning younger artists, Alan Serrett, Joe Kasuth, Jeffrey Liu, Suzanne Harris. A number of artists were starting to show their work. It was an alternative to those couple of galleries that had just opened. And artists could show their work without the sort of aspects of market, in a way environmentally or installational based. So not many galleries would allow an artist to do a big installation. The work on the floor, the ceiling, the walls, as Gordon Mata to cut a hole in a space. I know Alice Acock did a really great show in 19, I guess it was 1969 or 70 at 112 Green. And my mother said, oh, great idea. I want to open an alternative space. There are many younger artists and poets and performance artists she knew who, with 112, uh, she wanted to show. So she started that in 1970, uh, 69-70, just as 112 Green Street opened. It was 112 Green Street Workshop. My mother's was 98 Green Street Loft. It was a loft. And you didn't fix it up. It wasn't putting money into this expensive loft. It was pretty cheap. You walked up these long flights of stairs, upstairs to the, I guess it was the second or the third floor. Maybe it was the second, if I remember. She gave you, for performances, she gave you cushions to sit on the floor. She bought this big, cheap wine, like five-gallon wine. But, you know, she would bring in you know, some food from Katz's Deli or, you know, she'd have food to feed people and wine people would speak and it was about a, a dialogue with other people. It was about a relationship that you would meet someone new, you would talk about ideas, you know, talk about the Vietnam War and how bad it was or how this issue really needed discussion. There was food Gordon Mata Clark and a number of artists started a restaurant because there was a need to have another restaurant. There was only a greasy spoon, a truck driver stop near the tunnel. So they started a little restaurant where each artist would cook. And basically it was a vegetarian restaurant. And sort of the birth of Soho, Castelli and Sonoben moved into 420. Um, Ivan Karp ran. John Weber, so. John Weber as well, actually, was one of the first down in, in Soho. Yeah. But uh, it was a period where, uh, I don't know, things seemed, the impossible seemed possible. Yeah. People did their work, they had three jobs, artists, and they made their work in the most professional way, and they began to show their work the way they wanted it seen. So 112 and 98 opened. Another space had opened called The Kitchen, which Bob Stearns and the Vasulkas started. Uh, Robert Stearns and Woody and Steiner Vasulka. And it was there to do mostly performance art. Uh, performances and different types of events, multimedia events, The Kitchen. Uh, Franklin Furness, Martha Wilson started for performance art. Uh, and there was a lot of visual artists who were making performances, who could make a living doing performances and then started to make objects. 
objects came out of performances. I once actually did a show at an alternative space I ran. As my mother had 112 Green Street when I got out of college, I said, I'm going to work at an alternative space. And I worked for Josh Bearer at White Columns, which is an alternative space. But a lot of artists in the 70s, like Laurie Anderson, were doing performances. And then she was making, at the kitchen, I brought my mom over to see a Laurie Anderson performance. And Laurie was, had long hair and invented the tape bow violin, stood before an image of a minimalist window and a curtain that was blowing behind her. It was a very riveting performance. She was doing collages with photographs, and my mom said, hey, let's do a show to, together, Lori. So you had the kitchen, you had Franklin Furnace, you had another space actually called the Drawing Center. The Drawing Center, Martha Beck had started with a number of artists dedicated to works on paper and to drawing. And another space, you had Alana Heiss, who found a schoolhouse in PS1, which was a school in Long Island City, invited many artists. Their, her first show was an installation show, it was artists doing installations throughout each of the rooms at PS1. Gordon Mata did an installation. I'm looking at a Mata Clark right now called Bronx Floors from 1972 from a building that he made a cut in and... Uh, Really, Gordon, as I said, was one of the most influential artists that I met as a boy. He taught me about art in non-art spaces. I went with him. He became really good signature. Yeah, yeah well, from the garage and from other types of venues that I've worked with art, Cristo really, you know, Oldenburg with the storefront, Alan Capra with Happenings in New York, Space was cheap, and artists took over spaces. And then, you know, Cristo really going as a boy, seeing, I think, the Valley Curtain, seeing projects of Cristo's and him it's organizing people who are not normally involved in art to be involved, to care about it, to be excited, to give a part of their lives in part to a project, to help with that project succeed. And Christo is one of, and Jean-Claude, is one of the most visionary artists I've ever met, actually. And changed the scope of the art world. Changed the scope of art. In terms of going out to the streets, you mean? Going out into the world. But really, Christo, he escaped Bulgaria. He moved to Paris. He lived under Yves Klein. He made his way to New York. My parents met him very early on. My mother said, you have no money? I'd love for you to do my portrait. Cristo painted my mother's portrait. Two portraits wrapped that he wrapped. He was a great portrait artist. That's how he paid, made his living, making portraits in Paris. He painted Jean-Claude's portrait, and they fell in love. And she was... An amazing woman, as Jean-Claude is. She could run the country. And, uh, and he was beginning to wrap objects, uh, irons, books, different types, oil, drums. And my parents bought one of the first pieces of Christo's called Yellow Storefront, which was a storefront facade 
with a light that a button pushed, and it was in my hallway entrance as he walked into the apartment. And Christo really brought a sort of social aspect, and Christo, with his projects, tackled certain problems about communication, very much about where art lies. So I, I, as a boy, I got to know Christo's work from the objects that were wrapped in the house, the apartment, the yellow storefront, and then his greater projects. So my parents, they didn't just collect pop art. My parents were very diverse in collecting of Flavin, Chamberlain, Archbogger, who was not really considered a pop artist. But I, I think... I learned a lot about mixed media, about artists working with diverse media. I think one of the most influential artists that I remember meeting was an artist they first collected called Bruce Nauman. Nauman, they bought a 10-part photo piece, the artist eating his words. And they loved Bruce's work, his aspects of language, materials, Bruce working in many different media. And it wasn't just the sort of, they didn't just live with a painting collection. They love some photography, um, but they really brought artists more difficult, challenging sculpture, installation. Yeah, artists would come and make work in the apartment. They'd make a piece in the bathroom, or they'd make a work in the kitchen, an environment. My parents even had Warhol have SNH green stamps, Warhol's wallpaper in our, pardon me, maid's room freezer for meat locker um, <laughs> in the very back of the apartment. So art and chances for artists to make work were so there, and... Uh, you know, opportunity to get the work shown in a space collected by someone who cared about it, who showed it to other collectors, writers, curators, museums, and they always believed in sharing their collection with people so that the art and the artist's work could have a greater life outside of their own existence. But about the 70s, my mom... Then after 98 Green Street, three years of doing art shows, the art world was changing. Gordon Mata Clark, son of Mata, went to Cornell, helped, I think, my mom see art differently. Uh, Gordon cut buildings, made abandoned buildings, made projects, exhibitions that were temporary, like Cristo, about the memory. He would take photographs beyond just documentation of the projects. Like Cristo, the projects were only up till the building was torn down. Uh, there wasn't any opening or ceremony, usually with Mata Clark's work. Uh, it was open to anybody who saw it, who knew about it. Um, I know there was one project called Pier 52 Days End, which I helped work on as a boy, um, uh, there, my mom did have an opening, and actually the police came, tried to arrest my mother, tried to arrest Gordon, uh, put a, a warrant out for arrest of Gordon. Gordon had to leave America and go to Europe 
for, I think, two years. For what? The police wanted to arrest him for breaking and entering because it was a Port Authority of New York, New Jersey pier, and he had broken it, broken the locks, cleaned the whole pier up, made cuts in the pier, and made this sculpture out of the pier. So that was called Day's End, and it was an amazing project, but Gordon had to leave America. And uh, basically, my mom was under constant lawsuit threat by the city of New York and the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, uh, which actually was my landlord later on in the early 80s at White Columns. But uh, So the 70s, things were changing. My mother started the gallery on West Broadway in 1975. When my mother started the gallery, she couldn't open a business checking account. She had to get it co-signed by my father. A woman was not allowed to open on a business account on her own. This was 1975 in New York City. At that time, what happened in New York? New York was bankrupt. New York was declared bankruptcy in 1975. So the year she moved was not a particularly great economic year to start a gallery in New York. But it's as it is, it's not about the money, it's about the art. So... She started her gallery. Gordon Mata was one of her artists. Alexis Smith was another artist. She showed a couple of artists from California, a great, great painter, sculptor named Kim McConnell. Kim lives in uh, San Diego, La Jolla. He uh, has been head of the art department at UCSD. My mother showed Laurie Anderson, Robert Maplethorpe. She showed an artist named Suzanne Harris, a sculptor an artist named Richard Nonis, another sculptor, a minimalist sculptor. Upstairs from her on West Broadway was one of the most important galleries named John Gibson. John Gibson showed a lot of conceptual art from Europe, showed Marcel Brotaires, showed, uh, oh, James Lee Byers, worked with a lot of European and American sort of conceptual photo-based art. And uh, my mom had collected from John, knew a number of these artists. Their collection, I think, 1968, Fred Sambach was asked if he would do an installation on our dining room. But Fred came to the house, had dinner. Every night, I'd see Fred as I came home from school at 4 o'clock. And uh, he'd stay for dinner, usually, and have dinner. We'd joke and talk. And Fred did a corner string piece in the corner of our dining room. And I think the last night he said, I'm finished. And I said, Fred, where's the piece? He said, perfect, Tom. I love that you can't see the piece. It's so integrated into the architecture. It was just a simple string that went up um, to the corner and mirrored the architecture of the corner of the the dining room. Um, Actually, after that, Holly said, Fred, You've changed art for me. I'm no longer going to collect minimalism. You've set it all in a minimalist aesthetic. No one else can match your ideas and your work. That next year, she found Neil Jenny, a great painter who worked with words on frames and images that sort of looked like finger, childlike painting. She found Neil's work and gave Neil a show. She found Susan Rothenberg horse paintings. Susan was just beginning a series of horse paintings. My mother loved them, works on paper. 
Susan's work she admired so much and bought work, told everyone to buy Susan Rothenberg and Neil Jenny and at 69, 70. And, and she got known in the mid-70s for a movement called Pattern and Decoration, a misunderstood and really, really uh, confusing label to an art movement. She showed Valerie Jordan and Robert Kushner, Kim McConnell. Uh, there was another artist named Miriam Shapiro and another artist named Joyce Kozloff in New but York. Miriam Shapiro was part of the Women House, and it was a whole different... Well, she got grouped, Miriam, with Joyce Kozloff and other artists who were working with pattern and motifs and ideas from other cultures, like from... Uh, basically from not Asia, but yeah, sometimes Asia, but mainly from Persia, uh, from Iran or Iraq or, or other Eastern motifs and subject matter. My mom always showed a lot of women, which was interesting. I mean, she had a role model of Ileana Sonnabend yes. and Paula Cooper Absolutely. and Martha Jackson and a lot of really important women dealers, um, but she really wanted to show her generation. And in the early 70s, not only then, you know, pre-Bourgeois, Nevelson, Lee Bontecue, Lee Lozano, there were very important artists who were women and not just making feminist women art. I think she wanted to integrate that generation of her own and not say it's just feminist. You know, Ree Morton was making incredible work. She loved Ree's work, uh, sculptor, worked with narrative and imagery. And, you know, sh she wanted it to be integrated into, not ghettoized, or feminist art. There was AIR Gallery, which was a feminist art gallery. But I think she saw art not in a sort of pigeonholed way to interpret it. She wanted a greater breadth and gave a forum where someone like Laurie Anderson or Suzanne Harris or you know someone, say, who was making Alexis Smith, we'll come to right now, uh, Alexis, who was from California, she responded immediately to Alexis's ideas with objects and the found object, the thrown away object. A lot of the 70s and early 70s work had to deal with uh, reusing found thrown away garbage. New York, as you know, is a place where the world changes when you walk on the street and you go by people's garbages. What gets thrown out, somebody can pick through and reuse and remake alive. There were sort of four main issues, I think, in the early 70s. One was the anti-Vietnam War, was issues of gender, the male-female roles changing. Somebody like Kim McConnell or Kushner or other artists who were sewing with fabric, who were working with what was known as either feminine material or ideas that were known in a feminine type of way. There was a rule reversal between male and female. There was women's liberation, which was the issue in the 60s and early 70s. Women could go out, make a living, have a family. 
They can do what they want. They didn't have to just be wives or raise children. And my mother was a leader that way. She had John and I. She raised us in the best way she could, but she went out and she did something for herself on her own that meant something to other people that was influential. Around 1978-79, and a new group of artists were coming up in New York that I was interested in as I was in college and then around Soho. Another important space started beside 112 Green Street. It was called Artist Space. And there was a, a curator named Helene Wiener who uh, actually uh, really ran Artist Space. They did an exhibition called Pictures that Douglas Crimp put together. And a whole other younger generation that was coming up uh, in the late 70s, from CalArts. But John Baldessari, very influential artist and teacher, and Douglas Hubler at CalArts, really were very influential with younger artists, part of the pictures generation of using photography, film stills, media-based art, and re-photographing, recontextualizing. Hall walls up in Buffalo and Sepia Photography Gallery, Cindy Sherman, Robert Longo, and a number of Richard Prince and other artists moved uh, from Buffalo to New York and uh, a whole sort of generation. There's a show at the Met right now called The Pictures Generation. But at Y Columns, the space that I would eventually direct and curate, and I worked when I was in college and just graduating with Josh Baer, it was 112 Green Street. Soho got too expensive. Josh Bear and Jeffrey Liu and a couple of people moved it uh, to Spring Street. I think Mary Boone was just starting to show in Metro Pictures. Helene had left uh, Artist Space and with Janelle started a, a, a gallery called Metro Pictures. And I think Anina Nozai started another gallery, Anina Nozai Gallery. Which she showed Troy Brontalk, who came from CalArts. She showed David Deutsch from the 70s. She worked with many important artists. And of course, Jean-Michel Basquiat, who actually wanted to show with my mom. In the basement, I went to see the work with my mom. And Jean-Michel wanted to show with my mom. My mom bought a painting then brought my uncle, Donald, who was a collector, said, come, you should buy a painting of Jean-Michel's. I think my mom was beyond just pattern. She showed Sigmar Polka. She was Sigmar's great German painter, his first dealer in New York, gave him his first show in New York in the 70s at her gallery. She showed many different types of work from all around the world. Um, She did show a lot of young New York artists, Judy Pfaff, Ned Smythe, Laurie Anderson, an autistic artist named Christopher Knowles, who wrote Einstein on the Beach with Robert Wilson, who made great paintings and typewriter pieces using a typewriter, these sort of scrolls of information. Uh, Bob Kushner, Kim McConnell, other artists who were grouped as pattern painters. It was, I mean, Kim was really looking at Matisse, was looking at really serious subject matter in art and painting. There was a group called New Image Painting, which my mom helped to show. Nick Africano and Joe Zucker 
Joe Lou from Chicago, was a contemporary and a good friend of Chuck Close, started with the cotton ball, dipping in an acrylic, painting with the cotton ball, starting in this pointillist uh, with subject matter narratives, starting with a grid, grid painting like Chuck, starting many artists, Alfred Jensen, many artists worked with the grid as a beginning formal concern to work from. Uh, Alec, uh, Joe Zucker dealt with American and really interesting narrative art. Neil Jenny, Nick Africano, uh, Joe you, Zucker. I remember show you did of uh, Nicholas Africano. Yeah. Um, at, um, at, my, at my garage. garage. Yeah, yeah. That was actually an amazing show. Yeah, thank you. I showed sculpture and paintings right now. It's going to be really this next decade. As we go in, we're really not in the first decade anymore. I think we're in the second decade. I think that... What do you mean by the second decade? The second decade of the 21st century. It's 2009 now. Right. But... I've been living more in the second decade, the last two to three years, than in the first decade. And I think how we're, do you see the difference between the first decade and the second decade, as far as the art world is concerned? Uh, I think now is much more of a return back to less about the money and the talk in the art world has been so much about money. I think artists talk about art. Uh, my mother passed away in 2002. And she had been sick with cancer, and I was taking care of her in New York. I was curating a show of San Francisco Bay Area conceptual art of the 70s. I had been always interested in San Francisco conceptual art from the 60s and 70s. Tom Marioni, Howard Freed, an artist named Paul Koss, very important artist named Lynn Hirschman, Terry Fox, who collaborated with Boyce, was from San Francisco. Jim Melcher, who did projection work. San Francisco, like Los Angeles in the 60s and 70s, had a lot of really important, interesting contemporary art. A lot of it didn't get seen in New York. Reese Paley, as you mentioned, had a little gallery in New York. They were San Francisco. They showed a lot of them. Terry moved to Germany, had collaborated with Boyce. And for many years, only Harry Zeman, one of my favorite curators in the world, who is a very old friend. Harry, I sort of emulate my working with art since I was a boy, getting to talk with Harry in my kitchen in New York. Harry would be drinking cognac and smoking cigarettes and talking with me about art in Europe and what he was doing with Mario Mertz and James Lee Byers and Joseph Boyce and exhibitions at Documenta that he was curating and, you know, all sorts of different non-art type of spaces. He was the first sort of independent curator who wasn't attached to a museum. He later got attached sort of in a way to the Zurich Kunsthaus, where I think he did a Cezanne exhibition. But he, he, he was a very influential curator and writer, Zeman. And my parents, my mother Holly and Harry... Harold or Harry, we called him, um, and his wife Ingeborg, who was a very good artist, uh, Lucia, um, I really loved very much. And I sort of, my working with art and artists, I, I've tried to sort of live up to some sort of half of what Harry Zeman really had produced.
introduced in his life. He just recently passed away. But running white columns out of college, I went over to see an exhibition at White Columns and when I was still in school, and I asked Josh Bear about working with him as I was graduating. This was 1981. He was already working with Cindy Sherman and Nancy Dwyer and Richard Prince. And uh, as I said, from my mother's roots of an alternative space, I thought I would get my sort of beginning professional life at White Columns working on, you know, non-for-profit exhibitions, basically. And I made a space called the White Room Program where I would show young artists. And usually in alternative space, an artist will show once and you'll never see them again. What I decided to do in my pool table room, where I had a pool table we used as a desk, play pool with friends and people who would come in. Um, our hours were actually from 4 to 12 at night. New York was a late night place, so people would come after dinner, would play pool, hang out, drink beer, look at the art. Um, we had first 4 to 12, which worked pretty well. I mean, you know, New York being what it was, you'd have lunch, basically I'd go to work, or I'd go to studios. One of my main concerns at White Columns was responding to young artists. So I would go at least to two studios a day, six days a week, to come and look at their work. There was a commitment on my part to find new art. So I started the White Room program, the White Room program of this room called the White Room, Three Walls. I did a show with Chris Wool, Moira Dreyer, and another painter, and we had the pool table in this space. And uh, we just started to do these exhibitions, and I turned it into one-person shows. And then the whole year, every artist who showed in the white room would show in the main room with a catalog. I was at White Columns in 1985. I did a music festival called Speed Trials with a guy named Tom Payne from Live Skull, a really good band that I liked. Three Teens Kill Four, David Wanarovich had a band. The Fall, Lydia Lunch, The Fall were from Manchester. I love Marquis e. Smith and The Fall's music. and They headlined the festival. And to make a long story short, we had five nights, 55 bands. And a friend of mine said, we're going to do a party. Let's do a party at Studio 54, the antithesis of punk rock. Uh, Rubel's Club uptown, where my mother would go, Warhol, and sort of the social scene. And I was always CBGB's, The Mud Club. Pier 50, uh, Tier 53, I think it was a bar, and all sorts of different little oh, yeah. clubs. <laughs> so I, I said, well, okay, we'll do a party at Studio 54. I had Eric Bogosian do a performance. I had Zev do a banging on a drum. I had Carl Perlman, Walter Robinson, Kiki Smith, Mike Lear, and what was known as Collab, Collaborative Projects, do an installation in the club. I had a girl band and then a band from San Francisco I love called Flipper. And Flipper wanted to be in the festival, but they drove their car cross country, didn't make it. So I had Flipper actually at Studio 54, which was very, very great. I think they didn't do a setup, and the sound people at Studio 54, after Flipper was the last to go on, hated Flipper, pulled the plug, and I started a riot, and I always loved, and that's the sort of ultimate punk rock dream, 
is to start a riot at Studio 54, which I did, um, which I was very proud of. Still, I'm proud of. L.A. artists, we had shown Jack Goldstein, Mike Kelly, an uh, artist named Matt Mullican, who went to CalArts, uh, a young artist I loved named Ashley Bickerton. And we had done a show called The New Capital with Jeff Koons and Peter Halley and a group of younger artists. This was 
Peter Halley, Meyer Weissman, Philip Taft, Annette Lemieux, many artists in New York, young artists who had never shown in Europe before. This was their first museum exhibition. So I got a call, why don't you come to LA, Tom, look at art. So I started to see interesting artists here that I knew, Rosamund Felsen and Richard Kuhlenschmidt with Jim Corcoran and a great gallery, Margot Levin. Those were the, the galleries that interested me when I came here in 86. So those were the most interesting for younger artists and some older and some New York artists that I knew. A friend of mine from New York who had a gallery named Paizo Electric, Doug Milford, said, you should go look at my sister. She's just opening a gallery on Market Street called Paizo Electric. And I said, okay, um, I'll take the directorship. My first show was a show called Hang Ten, uh, 11 artists who had never shown before. That was with Meg Cranston and Gonzalez, Luciano Perna, Darcy Hubler, Jim Shaw, a group of younger artists who had graduated CalArts. My second show was a show with Mike Bidlow recreating the Warhol first Ferris soup can show. Exactly. And Mike was an appropriational artist from New York who I had shown and worked with and who was in my Copenhagen show. So there was a gallery opening on La Brea named Fahey Klein. Randy Klein and David Fahey. David ran G. Ray Hawkins' photography gallery. Called me up and said, hey, uh, we're starting this gallery. Do you want to be director? Uh, Work with us. We want to do art outside of photography. So I started to work there. I worked for about six months again with David and Randy. I did an exhibition, a group show, um, called Through the Looking Glass, East and West. It was the first time I did an exhibition with my mother. She was still uptown. It was with Fahey Klein and Holly Solomon Gallery, with Los Angeles Art in both galleries. There was an East and a West. Fahey Klein, of course, was the West version. And the East version was with my mother. But I ended up being there, and I was seeing a lot of artists, as I make a lot of studio visits still, I was seeing a lot of artists who worked in their garage. Aha, inventive, interesting space. New ideas come out of garages. It's cheap. Two-car garage, bing, why don't I start a gallery in a garage? So I looked at garages, and I had that sort of idea. It related to... This was 1987. 1988, I opened, uh, my first show was Michael Gonzalez's Eraser Pictures, Eraser Paintings. Um, but I, I had the idea where new invention, new ideas come out of small Mattel toys, Apple computers. Invention in California comes out of garages, you know, residential garages. It's working, thinking space. And at that time, the crash... Kind of, we were feeling well, sort crashed. of the market crashed yeah. the next year in 89, Yeah, actually. There was a sort of big stock market crash when I was at Fahey that happened around 87, if I remember, 80, 87, beginning of 88. Yeah. And yeah, but it didn't really hit the art market until a little bit later. A little bit later, exactly. Yeah. It hit the about market years later. about a year later, I think. Something like that. But I... I I just loved the idea of a little two-car garage space. I found it on Hayworth in between Fairfax and Hayworth was an alley, sort of like a barn door opening. I had the opening on the alley. I had normal hours, you know, Wednesday, Tuesday, or Wednesday through Saturday. 
I think it was like 11 to 5. I did exhibitions. My theme was postcards, California historical images from the 1880s to the present of an archive. I had artists choose an image to relate to his or her work. So that became the look of the gallery about California history, subject matter of California. Whenever I did an ad in a magazine, I used one of those images, one of the historical postcards. So what really brought me out to L.A., developed and kept me here so much was the artists here, the art schools. I knew in the 70s the artists who stayed here, they taught here. And really the most interesting places, UCLA, CalArts, really were the two for me. So, and I was seeing all of these younger artists uh, whose work interested me. So the two-car became a three-, four-, and a five-car garage. I took over all the garages and in 91 and closed the garage, and I moved to Berlin. Uh, Berlin, I felt, I showed Franz Ackermann from Berlin at the old garage. I knew a number of artists in Berlin, but I ended up spending about six months traveling in Europe. Harry Zeman had a couple of exhibitions that I wanted to go and see, and openings, and... I thought living in Berlin, the wall had come down and thought it would be a really interesting place to be for a little while. Not that I, I abandoned L.A., I didn't. I always took with me the spirit of Los Angeles, of the artists, talked about Los Angeles young artists and what was happening here to my friends in Germany and London and what was happening in Europe, which was really significant in terms of new art. But... Uh, I made it back to New York and helped my mom move from the 57th Street apartment uh, to 79th Street. And I worked on a couple of interesting projects independently, and a project with a Japanese artist, uh, with a project here um, based on something called Philharmonic Music and Art Meeting with the L.A. Philharmonic. Esopeka Salonen had asked uh, Yoshitaka Amano, an animated painter and animation artist to work on a film called A Thousand and One Nights. It was a collaborative idea. David Newman, Randy Newman's, I guess, brother, uh, was a film composer, and he, very successful film composer, he and Amano collaborated on a project that the Philharmonic played live based on Scheherazade's Thousand and One Nights. So I worked with Amano on that project and on an exhibition in a non-art space and uh, ended up staying in L.A. I got a call from Peter Norton, great collector I had with his wife, Eileen. They collected like my parents in depth. They bought five, ten pieces. They kept buying an artist's work over a period of time. They believed in new art, new ideas, and supporting the galleries here in Los Angeles. And Peter had called me. They had bought the Clyde Beswick collection, another collector, integrated it, wanted my expertise and work, and asked me if I would work with them cataloging, finishing cataloging the Beswick acquisition, looking with them what to keep, what to donate. They wanted to start a donations program. So I was hired to be the head of the donations program for Peter and Eileen Norton's collection. And they had an amazing contemporary art collection. I developed a plan 
with Susan Kahn and Chris Karamatsu. Chris was working, uh, Susan was directing the collection. And uh, they have a great foundation that gives money to museums and exhibitions around the world. I worked on a project with the rock and roll band U2 on visuals with this woman, Catherine Owens, who they brought me on to see about art images for the Popmark tour. And so I suggested Lichtenstein Pop Art, introduced them, the band, and Paul McGinnis, the manager, to Lichtenstein at the time Roy was still living. We animated with some animators some of Roy's images and got a number of different pop images for into animation, into the Pop Mart tour. But uh, all roads led back to L.A. with Peter. And being back here, I loved being in L.A. And in 2002, my mom was getting sick back in, in the hospital, back and forth. But I, I ended up curating this Bay Area conceptual art show, Dave Mueller making work related to it for the Pasadena Museum of California Art. The next week after the opening, my mother passed away. So I went back to New York to work um, on a memorial for my mom, which I helped organize with my brother at the Guggenheim Museum. Tom Krenz gave us the museum for free, said do a memorial for Holly. And I had a film video section. Kim McConnell painted a big painting with three areas for filmed work on the painting that hung in the rotunda. Speakers made speeches. There were about 20 speeches from Mary Heilman, who she showed, to Bill Wegman, who she showed, to Judy Pfaff, to Richard Armstrong or Kurt Vonnegut from MoMA. Many different people gave memorial talk speeches at her memorial. So it was a great memorial. I was really proud to put that together. And then after that, I did a film sort of evening with Jonas Mikas at the Anthology Film Archives on Holly. I worked with a Brendan Kral, an artist, film historian, filmmaker, on a couple of evenings of Holly's films. But I came back to L.A. I worked on her estate for two years. She had these storage spaces and an incredible archive that I had to go through and return art to artists, return art. I have it here. This next month, I'm in the process of donating her archive to the Smithsonian. So the Archives of American Art I'm working with. So I'm excited that that archive is going to be available for for scholars and for interested people in art. But uh, I ended up coming back to L.A., my friend Deanna Cohen, an artist, said, I miss your garage. I have this space. It used to be Keith Bodwe's studio and Carter Potter's studio on La Brea and Second. Why don't you come here and just do a show? So I said, okay, I'll just do a show in this two-car garage. You entered it from uh, Sycamore Street. It was by Second and La Brea. And so I did a Lee Lozano Drawings of the 60s show. Bob Nickus, curator, writer in New York, did a fabulous Lee Lozano survey of Lee's work at PS1 that I had seen. My mom knew Lee, and actually, uh, I said, oh, quirky garage, Lee Lozano, perfect, never showing in L.A. So I borrowed drawings. I did an exhibition of Lozano's drawings from the 60s. Then I did a Marcel Broter show. A Broter's work from 1976 called Voyage on the North Sea, 
which was a film uh, on a home-beaded movie screen with a canister and a book. Um, fantastic Brotaires. I love Marcel Brotaires' work. And um, I started to do these historical exhibitions with a young artist. I did a solo show of Adam James. I did a s- exhibition with Joe Zucker drawings of the 70s, works on paper. And I had a year program at her garage. My last show there was called 1968, of Bachner, Lewitt, Robert Berry, Barry LeVay, John Baldessari, Lee Lozano, Stephen Kaltenbach, Lawrence Wiener, all in this two-car garage. Not many people saw my shows in this garage. You have images of them? I have. It's called Solo Projects, was the title of the garage space. It's my second incarnation um, in garages. And my friend Dan Hugh, who I had befriended, and Joel Missler, Dan had a gallery. He had moved from Wilshire to Chinatown. And I remember Chinatown coming here in the 70s. And there was a bar called Emmy Lou's that had a jukebox of jazz. I was a big jazz nut. I'd come down, and I remember the bar being taken and Chinese restaurants. And an old feeling of Los Angeles was in Chinatown. And you could walk. So when Dan Hugh and Joel called me to say, hey, we want you to take over the space called Rental. Rental, they had started by the Wishing Well, the space. And they invited galleries from outside of America to take it for the month. So that they pay and they chip work and do a show. So Christian Nagel did an exhibition, Ritter Zamet from London, Roster Gallery from Poland. They had really good galleries who took it over for the month. They said, Joel, I'm moving to New York. Tom, why don't you take it over? Do whatever you want. We'd love to have you in Chinatown. And I had an idea then. I had seen Kristen Cunningham, a sculptor at work in Thing, a sculpture show that Christopher Miles and James Elaine did at the Hammer, young Los Angeles sculpture. Kristen went to UCLA And I had an idea to do three successive shows, back to back to back, that related to each other. So my first show was about drawing, but in sculpture. I invited Kristen to make a piece. She made a piece called 4D Receiver, really beautiful sculpture. I had a Fred Sandback from 1968, a string corner piece. I had an Alan Serrett wire sculpture. And I had a John Chamberlain soft foam urethane rope piece and a Michael Gonzalez shaft collar sculpture. So my second show at Rental, and I still called it Thomas Solomon Gallery at Rental, um, Rental Gallery, was a sculpture show but in photography. So really about sculpture. So I had a Smithson photo piece. I had a Bastian Otter, a boss standing by the sea with a sign saying fire. A beautiful 70s piece of Voss. Very important artist who lived here and conceptual artist who made film and photo-based work. But I had Shannon Ebner, one of the most talented young artists I've seen at the time. She had a large photograph next to the Bastiana Otter. Amata Clark, of course, one of the cuts from Paris, from a project he did in Paris of a building cut that he did. And then I had a Dennis Oppenheim from 1968 of Dennis connecting space with his body. And I had a Gilbert and George 
drinking people. So my fourth show was a photo-based artist named Eve Fowler, who did portraits, photographs that I really love. And then I had a chance, what did I do? They wanted the space back. An artist whose work, painter I like, named Dennis Hollingsworth, they gave me, Joel and Dennis, a chance to take over the space if I wanted for a certain amount of money. And I decided just to give it back to them, that I'd find another space to have a gallery. So Katie from Sister Gallery, the following year, I kept coming to Chinatown. And like all different sort of art spaces, things kept growing in Chinatown. Culver City was growing. A couple of younger galleries were starting in Hollywood. John Newth at Circus and Overdone and Kite were opening on Sunset. Michael Benevetto was opening on Sunset as well. Um, but I, I always thought Chinatown had great potential. And Katie called me from Sister. She had a gallery next to the Wishing Well. Uh, was the other gallery beside Jack Henley in that sort of group that I had rental, uh, that area in Chinatown. Katie said, I found a space. I'm doing a sculpture show called Globetrotters. Uh, come see it. It's in an old cinema on Cottage Home Street. So that sounds great. I'll come. I'll see. She was installing, and it was this very rough, abandoned cinema. And so this space that we're sitting in. So I said, oh, interesting. She said, do you have any interest in sharing it with me? I said, well, that's an interesting concept to share it with you. I said, yeah, uh, we'd rotate it. Uh, how about let's get a couple of other galleries involved? So we called up Steve from China Art Object Gallery on Chongqing Road. Steve's one of the most respected. He's the oldest gallery in Chinatown. He started in 1999. Black Dragon and Chris Acuna Hansen started AC, I think, around that time, and Mary Goldman. Um, were the first galleries in Chinatown. So Steve said, yeah, that sounds great. He loved the space. It's like 21-foot ceiling height. We kept the projector uh, room with the holes in the wall. And we did build some walls and make, make it nicer. We left it still kind of funky in the character of it. We weren't trying to sort of uptown the gallery. It's still Chinatown. I think that the space itself... It's unique to Chinatown. There's no other space like it. Chinatown spaces are generally storefronts. This is more of a sort of English or New York, Chelsea, larger type of space. It, it, uh, the art is beautiful in it, sculpture, painting, drawing. You know, it looks big, but when you put art in it, it's not that big. Um, I did the first we decided we opened it just the three galleries last June, July. We did a show called I Can See for Miles, dot, 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 taken from a, a Who, uh, the rock band Who, um, from a song. And it really, we selected a couple of artists from each gallery. I selected Brad Eberhard, a young painter I had seen at Claremont. Uh, as one of the artists, Troy Brontalk, painter that I had worked with at the old garage and I knew from CalArts and from Metro Pictures when they first opened Metro. 
in New York, and Issa Genskin, a German painter, sculptor. Um, there was a painting that I thought would fit nicely with the grouping of Issa's from 1989, and a William Eggleston photograph, a woman, yeah, a really great photo that I chose, that I borrowed, of a woman holding a purse on the street, uh, on a, a green sort of street field road. Um, actually, her dress, I think, was green. But I, I, uh, I began that way, and then my first show, solo show, was Kristen Cunningham in November, December, of Kristen's new work called Time Machines, new sculpture. She works in many different materials, working with aspects of time travel, of a hypercube. I'm looking at a piece called Annie's Dream, which is a, a sculpture made out of bronze, hand-painted, which looks like it's in cardboard, has cardboard paper edge to it. Um, I really was very proud of Kristen's show. It came at the height of the recession in November, December. We got a really nice review in Art Forum. Christopher Miles wrote about it. And really good response from her solo show. The gallery rotates. So every month, one of the three galleries does an exhibition. So every third month, or whenever you feel like doing a show? No, we've planned it this year. I do three exhibitions a year. Katie from Sister does three exhibitions per year. Steve was doing two with one group show in the summer of the three of us. So in summing it up for the Alexis Smith show that we're in right now, how did that happen? I called up Margot and Wendy, and I said, you're doing an Alexis Smith show. So, you know, my history with Alex... Would you entertain the idea and ask Alex? I didn't call Alex directly. I said, would you entertain him? Do you think Alex might be interested in working with me? We go back a few years from the 70s and my mom. And Margot said, hmm, interesting idea. I'll call Alex. So she called Alex, and I think Alexis was really excited with the idea. She said, oh, can I come down and look at the space? I think I've been there once. So Alex came down and we had a talk, and I said, you know, Alex, there, what interests me, as I do and think about all art, is the process of your work, your ideas, and where you take your materials. You know, like Gordon Mata or artists in the 70s, or artists for many years working with found, abandoned material that they've recycled, they've reused in a way to make that object and integrate it with their ideas. So I said, Alex, I have a sort of vision about showing your work, art and non-art, signs and objects that you collect that relate to your artworks. They aren't artworks. They aren't, I wouldn't show them or sell them, pardon me, as artworks. I would show them in context of your finished artworks. I said there's an edge there that's, I can't have too many of them, might smother the art. I have to be wary about showing them on the wall or in an arty type of way. Uh, She said she was collecting bowling balls that were women's bowling balls. They're smaller holes. They're very colorful. They're very tactile, colorful, sparkly. Um, She said she had about 15 to 20 of them in her collection. So she could only find six. 
um, but I think the six are enough, and we place them in a corner of the space, sort of like gravity. Um, but they're small bowling balls, and they're just sort of placed in a nice sort of informal way in a corner of the space. So they really act like sculpture. There's a, a Rudy's hair sign uh, that we lean against the wall, and there's a jack of clubs uh, sign that leans against the wall in relation to an earlier playing card, Alexis Smith playing card table sculpture. But it's a great earlier piece of Alex's, and I thought it looked great and with the, the sign, the, the club sign, which leans near it. So I have an arrow sign with old, funky light bulbs. There's no electrical, and we hung it on the wall. It's the only non-art that I hung, and it points down above a doorway to a piece called Golden Girl. Part Golden Glow, not Golden Girl. There is a Golden Girl in it. Um, but there are new collages. She's really making amazing new collage pieces, one called Femme Fatale, another called Midnight Cowboy, and uh, collages using found paintings, objects, found photographs, um, and adding, arranging, collaging with materials. So I've been a very big fan, and Alex, it was a big task. There was a new piece, which was an installation called The Medium is the Message, on one wall. It's using a heart candy box and a toy drum, boys' drum set um, that's all tattered and used and destroyed, but it's still there. And it was on a wall. And I said, these are great objects. So I always wanted to make a piece out of them called The Medium is the Message. And I said, well, here's a big wall opportunity, Alex, make a new piece. So she made this really incredible piece on the wall. Uh, Norm Leach did the, uh, the, um, is the, and a dot at the, after the, the drum set. And very proud to work with Alex. It sort of comes around my history of my family, of my mother and my father and my memories of Alex as a young boy in New York and being thrilled to work with her on her installation at the clock tower, also at my mom's gallery, and sort of, as I said, it kind of comes full circle, sort of my life in the art world and Alex and the meaning of her art in my life. Interestingly, I'm, as I said to you, I've been living in the second decade of of the 21st century now. Yeah. I think think things are changing. What's left is the art to talk about. So when we're still sort of in the bush years, the museums are still doing shows they did two years ago, three years ago, planned. Galleries are still operating normally in a way that they did the last 10 years. I think in the next year to two years, we have a out. We're, yeah, we're going to have more of a shaking out. Things will, for better or for worse, and I think for better. Yeah. And opportunities can happen here. People can do the DIY. They can start galleries. They can start to do shows of their work with their friends. So I think all of us really want Cottage Home to be inventive in a different way that most galleries can't be or aren't. So I know 
I'm showing artwork of Alexis Smith, and I love the art that she makes, and I'll do whatever I feel I love to do. That's the way I am. In the meantime, I'm taking the second gallery. Huh. Yeah. And where's that going to be? Around the corner. It's Chris Acuna Hansen's space. And I said, well, recession, hard time selling, crazy me, why not? I take the space, I'll do something interesting there. So I think I'm going to do the opening show, middle, end of June, a three-person show with three young L.A. artists. So things are busy, um, quite exciting. People have said, well, Chinatown, some people have left. David Kordansky uh, had a really interesting gallery, left to go to Culver City. Perez Projects on Chungking Road had a gallery there for a few years, moved to Culver City to La Cienica. A couple of galleries moved into Black Dragons, two spaces. So things never are the same. Things always change. Good, bad, people come and go. Art still is what it's about. Artists still making really interesting art in Los Angeles. So, and as a neighborhood, Chinatown, it's harder to get people to come here. Downtown is difficult. The east-west divide, or as I say in New York in the 70s, there was uptown above 14th Street and change. downtown. That's going to change. I think there are more people, younger people moving into the next generations in Hollywood and Silver Lake. And, yes, you know, Los Vilas, Los Vilas kind of Eagle Rock, yeah, exactly. Pasadena. Exactly. And, yeah. What do you think your mom would think looking down from heaven and seeing you here? I'm showing Alexis Smith in Clever. Well, hmm. uh, I think she'd be really thrilled and very happy to see me working with work that she originally worked with and promoted and, you know, cared so much and loved. You know, you know art is very personal. It's a personal relationship that you have to an artwork and as a professional as well, to the artists. So they are family. It is a, a family that you build and work with. It's a business, but it's also you know, about a dialogue with ideas and with people. So I think she'd be very thrilled and excited that I am mounted this exhibition. You know, the collaboration idea I think is important I think that's important to try to show work in different contexts and different ways. So I, I think my mom would be very, very proud of it. Um, Thank you. Sure. Thank you so much for doing this. It's really been nice to talk with you, Arie. Thanks Thank for you. interviewing with me.